I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that uh, was one of my earlier guests, I think, from when I started this podcast almost you know, more than four years ago. Uh, he's the co-editor of Counterpunch, one of our favorite websites here, and the author of the new book, Atomic Days, Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America. Joshua, Frank, welcome back to Parallax Views. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here with you. I can't believe, has it really been four years? I, I think it has, actually. I think it has. I guess I've been keeping up with COVID. Right, right. Well, I've been keeping up with your work in the meantime, and I really have been enjoying this book. I'm still working through it, but um, let's talk about the sort of set and setting of the story of Atomic Days. It mainly centers on a place known as Hanford. So if I have listeners that don't know about Hanford, uh, what is Hanford? Sure. Uh, Hanford was one of the three locations and sites that was chosen during the Manhattan Project to produce nuclear uh, weapons for the government. Um, It was along with Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, it was chosen. Uh, And Hanford is located in eastern Washington state. Um, along the banks of the Columbia River. It was picked because it was remote. Um, Obviously, this was a clandestine, uh, you know, covert operation to develop nukes. Um, It was chosen because of that, you know, isolation. Uh, There weren't a lot of people out there. There was indigenous folks, of course, um, and some more poor peasant farmers, easy to remove. Uh, It was close to the Columbia River, as I mentioned, and that, that provided... Uh, constant electricity from the dams, which they needed to to have. Um, and that's basically the location that and why it was chosen. And quickly it was built um, in a matter of years and produced plutonium for decades. 
the town that is next to Hanford is called Richland. Uh, Richland basically didn't exist before the Manhattan Project. Uh, it was a military town then, um, full of you know scientists and engineers, many of which worked on different aspects of what was going on at Hanford and then didn't even really know what others or their neighbors were working on. Um, and now, as we'll get into, I'm sure the Richland still is a government town for different reasons. So then with regards to your coverage of this story, you've been uh, looking at Hanford for a number of years. How did you first get involved in covering this? Uh, yeah, I was working, I was doing some freelance stuff at the time uh, about 10 years ago, actually before I started working for Counterpunch. And I was doing um, some stories for Seattle Weekly and had some funding from the Nation Institute um, at the time, which is now called Type Media. Um, and with their funding and with some help from some whistleblowers, I wrote uh, a couple very long investigative pieces for Seattle Weekly um, at the time were really kind of the two biggest whistleblowers uh, that had come out in decades, uh, one of which was a top uh, Department of Energy scientist named Donald, Donald Alexander. He came on record with me. Um, and then another whistleblower that worked for a contractor out there named Walter Tamasitis. And so those two stories really kind of like um, opened my eyes to what was going on in many ways from like a very detailed <laughs> sort of perspective because of the investigation itself. Um, and from that, it sort of evolved and snowballed into really the broader conversation about what this location represents, what it means, and what it, what it is today. Um, but that was the catalyst for me. Uh, were those two those two stories and a, and a few pieces that kind of trailed after that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think other outlets have covered this story or have tried to cover it in, in some way. I think you mentioned that that at one point, uh, Rachel Maddow at MSNBC took up the story. But it seems like a lot of outlets will pick up this story and then it sort of fades. Why is that? It, it sort of gets covered and then it fades from the memory. It goes down the memory hole. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think that a lot of it has to do with the complexity of what's going on out there, um, that now it is the most expensive environmental cleanup in world history. Um, I don't think a lot of people really understand the legacy of what our uh, <laughs> our obsession with nuclear technologies has has, you know, done to the lands and to people. And um, it's, it's just a really big, complicated mess. So that's that's one aspect of it, I think. Um, another one is that it is really, it's not like next to a huge urban area. It's not next to San Francisco or New York or something where you'd have more people concerned and worried about it. Um, and then I think it's also just uh, the result of it um, being a, a uh, covert military operation for decades, that it was under wraps by the US military and the government for for a very long time, and to this day, that that shroud of secrecy still engulfs much of the cleanup and much of the project itself. So it's multi layered, um, you know, reasons why I think it's hard to penetrate what's really going on out there. Can we talk a little bit more about the the history of Hanford in terms of uh, mm -hmm. just everything leading up to you know the big mess that it caused and the ongoing cleanup? Uh, just the the background on it more. I know you covered. Uh, some of the aspects with regards to like the Manhattan Project and whatnot, yeah. but uh, furthermore, like any more details sure. you can give. Yeah, you know, so the site was 
producing plutonium and that plutonium uh, was produced in uh, over the years, different reactors were built. In, in total, there was nine reactors that were built that were refining weapons grade plutonium that was used for our arsenal of atomic weapons. Um, I, there, I think at, at one point there was over 21,000 warheads that it had produced fuel for. So it was basically like a ceaseless conveyor belt of uh, producing this this really the most radioactive product <laughs> known to man. Um, and in the process of building all those nukes and and to give people a perspective, you know, it started in the 40s, but it operated until the late 80s, basically until the end of the Cold War. So it was up and running for a good 50 years. During that time, it was making a ton of waste chemical waste and radioactive waste, and it was being dumped into these uh, underground tanks, much of it. Um, and those tanks were really, when they were built, and now there are 177 tanks total out there uh, in an area called the tank. There's two tank farms, and it's 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 this huge, massive area that's only a, you know five, six miles from the Columbia River. And these big tanks were built to store this waste um, and the waste was at the time, even the, the engineers and the scientists were very concerned and said, you know, these tanks are really just a very, you know, uh, temporary, um, you know, bandaid for, for what we what we're producing out here. But, you know, it's more important to prop up the U.S. war machine and we'll worry about the mess later. Um, so these tanks in, in many cases were only supposed to last like, you know, 20 years. We're going on uh, 80 in some cases. Um, and over the course of, of the life of these tanks, um, and you have to understand that the stuff that's in them is just, it's so toxic that it, it corrodes, uh, metal, it can leak through metal. It can get dumped, you know, make its way to the soil. So they have monitored these tanks, of course. Um, uh, and they've admitted the, and when I say they, I'm saying the U S government now the, op, the plant, you know, the site is operated by the department of energy. Um, but they have admitted to a total of 67 leaks that they they're admitting to. Uh, there's probably been a lot more leaks in that time. Um, and the groundwater supplies directly under these tanks feed the Columbia River. So as that radioactive materials make its way deeper into the soil, it can make its way into the groundwater supplies and end up in the Columbia River. Um, during its operation, they were monitoring fish in the Columbia uh, which were highly radioactive. Um, the Columbia River, for those that aren't familiar with the Pacific Northwest, is really the lifeblood for tens of thousands of farmers, um, dozens of commercial fisheries. It's a very important river for indigenous populations that have harvested salmon there for millennia. Uh, at the mouth of the Columbia, during its operation, they were finding fish that were radioactive. So we know that radioactive materials were making it, its way into the water one way or another. Um, and now today, because this uh, radioactive waste lasts as long as it does, there's a lot of it still sitting in those tanks. 56 million gallons uh, are sitting in tanks out there. And that's one aspect of the problem that we're dealing with today. The other aspect is that there were hundreds of billions of gallons of chemical and radioactive waste that was literally dumped into the soil. Um, so it's just it's it's crazy to think about the legacy that the cold war has left us out there um in many ways the the legacy is that the cold war is still bubbling in those tanks at hanford 
um, and will be for the foreseeable future. So uh, fast forward to the late 80s, uh, when it stopped, the site stopped producing plutonium, it became almost immediately a cleanup project. Uh, and one of the biggest tasks is what to do with the stuff in these tanks, right? So even to this day, uh, the, there's still conversations about what should ultimately be done. But for the past 30 years, the idea is to turn this stuff into glass, to, to vitrify it, um, is, is what the process is called. And they have spent somewhere like $60 billion so far to figure out how to do this. They've, they're in the process of building this huge plant called the waste treatment plant. Um, and it's not yet completed. It's the largest construction project in the world, or in the US at least. Um, I'm not sure about the world, um, but it's not operating. <laughs> it hasn't vitrified any glass. And the contractors that are uh, hired to do these this build is Bechtel, which Bechtel has a very shitty track record um, and has been reaping the spoils of, of U.S. imperialism all over the globe, of course. And I, I was going to say they're like one of the primary yeah, villains in this They story. are one of the primary villains. So it makes total perfect sense that they would be reaping the spoils here at home as well. Um, and they are. Um, and, and it's just, you know, and this isn't to just diminish the importance of the cleanup and how, that it needs to happen. It's not to diminish, you know, that there are really, really smart, intelligent people out there working on this stuff. Um, but the whole operation is uh, encased in this, you know, for-profit capitalist Yeah, you, you, you at one point, not, not to interrupt you, but at one point yeah. you call it essentially a profit-driven fraud. Yeah, and I, and I believe that it is. You know, there's very little oversight. Um, I mentioned one of the whistleblowers I talked to, uh, Donald Alexander, you know, he he was very clear to me and he had been working out there for decades saying, look, we the Department of Energy is well intentioned, but we are understaffed. We don't have the technical support that we need. And the contractors run the show out here. Um, and that has created an environment that is, you know, wasting taxpayers dollars and also no works really getting done. Um, just a few months ago, they were going to do a test run for low level waste. Um, and so they fired up this little test run for this vitrification process. And the machine that they had spent literally million, probably $100 million on, I'm not even sure how much money, but millions and millions of dollars on, didn't even work. It overheated in 24 hours and they had to go back to the drawing board. Um, you know, And they basically had a river, ribbon cutting for this big thing to say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're, we're making progress here. Um, but ultimately, very little is getting done out there. Um, the only thing that continues to happen is that more money keeps flowing to these contractors. If I could, I just wanted to read um, from a portion of the book and then have you comment a little bit on it. Uh, so you write um, uh, pretty pretty far into the book, you write, the tale of Hanford has been told in many ways over many years from many different vantage points. While these, while these accounts often provide important historical detail and context, I felt that most lacked a critical lens and were told from the top down. They more often than not failed to critique U.S. colonialism and the nuclear imperialism spawned by this entrenched white supremacy and how it played out at Hanford. These histories typically brushed over the brutality of Hanford's land seizures, its capitalist underpinnings, and the radioactive destruction 
our atomic weapons cause to natives, to the Japanese, and to the environment. So I, I want you to delve deeper into that for my audience. How mm-hmm. do the issues of colonialism, imperialism, and even white supremacy uh, tie into the story of Hanford? Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I mean, these are native lands we're talking about. Um, the Columbia River was a major source of food for indigenous um, nations for thousands, tens of thousands of years, you know, even before we we colonized the West. Um, when Lewis and Clark made their voyage over, you know, they were they commented that there were so many salmon in the river that you could walk across the backs of these salmon to get it to the other side. You know, and for anybody that's, uh, you know, been to the Northwest or seen the Columbia River, it's now a essentially like a slow moving lake. Um, there are dams up and down the uh, up and down the river that it's it's a completely a controlled river at this point produces um, the, these dams produce electricity for Portland. Um, it, they produce for the, this huge uh, Facebook um, <laughs> uh, server farm that's that's out there in the Dalles. Uh, so, you know, it's now an electrified river. Um, but in the process of building those dams, one of the major areas that was flooded was an area called Celilo Falls. Celilo Falls was um, really a, um, a nucleus for a lot of the tribes up and down the West Coast for a very, very long time. It was a trading outpost. So people would bring in, you know, uh, furs and trade for salmon. Um, and there's a lot of historical uh, information about tribes all the way from, you know, northern Washington all the way to Southern California would would gather at these areas. Uh, during the 1930s and 1940s, um, the remaining tribes in the area, uh, now known as the Yakima Nation, which is really the Umatilla, the Paiute, there's there's a few tribes that that ended up becoming the Yakima Nation. Um, they were the ones that were still um, on the lands that became Hanford. They were kicked off those lands. Obviously, this wasn't their first uh, foray with, um, you know, white colonialists. Um, and, you know, I would argue that Hanford now, you think about those land seizures, you think about erasing these people from these lands and mo- removing them, flooding their flooding their waters, you know, flooding the, their, their uh, fish, you know, um, areas where they were fishing. And you think about what that did to their culture and eviscerated their culture to erect something that would end up propagating more U.S. power across the globe. So I feel like Hanford is really a monument to uh, U.S. imperialism in many ways. And it's 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 still in our backyard, you know, and it's still there. And it I think it's um, for a lot of the natives in the area and we can get into some, you know, there, there's a lot of active activism going on around the project itself and and there has been for a long time but to think about Hanford in that context I think is vitally important to understand uh what it represents and why it's so vital that we we clean it up it's interesting too because I think uh at our current moment when we're dealing with issues like climate change and the impending you know uh, catastrophes that could bring about, I think there's a lot of people that are pushing for, and we'll get into this later, uh, nuclear energy, even people on the left. And I mm-hmm. think there's also this like hope that, you know, green capitalism uh, will save the day. 
but, you know, I, I think this book is important because as you write, uh, you know, Hanford is a pretty solid case proving that capitalism um, and almost religious devotion to private industry contracts is not the best remedy <laughs> to environmental disasters. Uh, and I'm, I'm taking exactly from the book uh, quoting there. Uh, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the role capitalism plays in Hanford and the story that you're telling. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also I think it's, it, it, you know, the piggyback off of what you're saying there, or to maybe try to answer the question, I think it's important to think about how our Pentagon operates, right? Um, we pour money into the Pentagon, the Pentagon doles out these contracts to Lockheed Martin, and all these other weapons manufacturers that are essentially, you know, private companies that profit. Um, we know that war is profitable. I mean, people have, have that kind of, we that's baked in us, right? We understand that. Um, but I don't think we really think about it when it comes to environmental cleanups. And in this case, it's an environmental cleanup that was caused by the military apparatus, right? So now, really, I think it's important to think about Hanford in that context, that Hanford is a military operation that is still being contracted out. Um, it just happens to be a cleanup of what this what this weapons development has done. Um, and in, in doing so, who are these who are these corporations accountable to ultimately right um they're not account they're bechtel is a privately run corporation um and i don't know what the current list is in forbes but you know they're usually in the top 10 of the most profitable companies in the in the country uh and there's a big reason for that and one of those is hanford they're they're reaping this you know the spoils they they have billion dollar contracts multi-million dollar contracts um the current estimate for how much this whole operation is going to cost is $677 billion. Uh, put that in perspective, you know, that's more than the space station by like 500 billion. Um, that's just six years ago. The price tag was like a hundred billion. So it keeps going up, up and up. We're going to see it probably topple a trillion here pretty soon. And what, what are, what are the taxpayers left with? You know, there aren't, there's no congressional hearings uh, demanding transparency. Uh, yeah, we can look at the real intricacies and details of the contracts, but nobody can really understand them. Um, a lot of it happens behind closed doors. Um, and this is all because it's encased in this capitalist for-profit system um, when really this should be completely out in the open. There should be um, a lot more accountability. And I would say that the government um, I, I'm so worried about what could potentially happen out there as far as the catastrophe could go, aside from the leaking tanks, um, that we should be putting our best people on this um, and and consider it the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum of the Manhattan Project to begin with, that we're going to need that much ingenuity and that much expertise to figure out how to deal with this problem, because um, you know, it's it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, plutonium is radioactive for 240,000 years. So, you know, what are we leaving future generations to deal with if we don't deal with this now? When you're discussing this issue, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll get people that will say, oh, well, you, you know, the problems, uh, you know, maybe this was just caused by uh, a few bad apples or, or uh, you know, a bad science, you know, uh, so, some folks didn't know what they were doing. How do you, I guess, respond to the people that 
try to maybe divert us away from thinking about this as a systemic issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, h- how do you sort of counter the arguments that, oh, maybe it's just uh, a few bad apples or things like that? Yeah, well, it's hard to think about it as a few bad apples when there's, you know, 21,000 nuclear warheads that have been produced, right? Like, this is not something that just a few people came up with. This is like, this is a government enterprise. And um, it's it's a result of geopolitical politics of the Cold War, of, you know, uh, chest beating. It's about keeping nukes in our back pocket as a, you know, quote unquote, deterrent from, you know, other invaders. It's about keeping capitalism and the the biggest capitalist superpower on earth in, in power. So if there's a lot of tentacles that wrap into this and I would say, who are the bad apples? If there's just a few bad apples, please point them out, right? Um, that's not the case. Certainly there have been villains in this story, there's no doubt, but that this is, uh, Hanford would not have existed just because of a few people. I mean, the problems that exist out there are systemic in nature. Um, and, and one of those problems, is, you know, I, so right now there's two leaking tanks and they don't even have an answer for what to do with these leaking tanks. They've, they're throwing tarps over top of them because they don't want the rain to push down the materials inside of them into the soil further. They're putting tarps on tanks. Um, there is another huge problem that could lead to a catastrophic explosion that would be unlike anything this country has ever witnessed. Um, so these tanks have different tanks have different stuff in them. Some of them they don't even know exactly what's in them, but they're producing hydrogen. Hydrogen buildup in these tanks has to be off-gassed, so they have to like let this gas, you know, seep out, or else it can build up. And if it builds up and uh, a spark ignites it, or it overheats, you could have a massive, massive explosion, um, and that radioactive materials could spread far and wide. And, you know, that's a, and that's one of the concerns that Donald Alexander talked to me about. Um, so, yeah, so we have these leaking tanks, a potential for an explosion. <laughs> Show me the bad apples. Like, this is the bad apples are in these tanks and those apples are rotting. I want to talk a little bit more about Donald Alexander, but I also wanted to go back to something I had mentioned before, and that's this whole push uh, to, to have nuclear energy as a solution uh, to mm-hmm. a lot of problems. And we're even seeing people on the left pick that up, which is kind of interesting given that, you know, historically, I think the anti-nuke movement was uh, the left play, play, played a pretty major role in that. Uh, now you have characters like uh, George Monbiot and um, Bashkar Sankara, who I know you sort of critique in the book a little bit, uh, saying nuclear is maybe the way forward. Um, why do you think we've gotten to this point where, uh, there's like less skepticism about nuclear energy and how, how can we maybe um, offer a critique of that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in many ways, and a lot of people come to supporting the idea of atomic energy out of fear of climate change. Um, this, this, Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think all the, the people supporting it are necessarily acting in bad faith, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's that's the primary driver is this concern of, of climate change and how to how are we going to deal with this, and um, obviously the burning of fossil fuels and producing uh, you know carbon emissions is has catastrophic effects. So that's a huge concern, and so you know you read the you read sort of the Wikipedia page about <laughs> nuclear energy, or you read an article by George Monbiot, and you say, oh, 
Well, look, yeah, the, the downside of nukes um, is nothing compared to the upside, which is that you can produce endless energy with no carbon emissions. Great. It's a great, it's, it's like the answer we've been looking for. And those damn lefties and anti-nukers, what the hell were they thinking, right? Um, and, then, and then they just kind of leave it at that. And that's, you know, that's where it's at. Um, but then you dig a little further and you realize, oh, wait a second. Um, you need uranium to, you know, produce nuclear energy. Uh, uranium needs to be mined. Uh, and then you learn a little more about uranium mines and what they've done to indigenous people in, you know, the Navajo, the Diné in New Mexico, that it's one of the most form toxic forms of, of mining. You learn that there's a ton of carbon emissions along the way in the nuclear uh, fuel chain. Um, the more the denser their uranium is in uranium ore, the more carbon that's needed to extract it. Uh, you learn that um, atomic energy is really, really expensive. Um, you learn that you have all these problems with leaks and with waste. Um, you learn that it, even if we are going to, even if all of the, um, even if it's as safe as everybody claims it is, that we couldn't even roll these things out in time to have an impact on the climate. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reasons that people should be opposing this, um, you know, and I come at it from a lot of different directions and critique it. Uh, but after working on this book, I really came away think, looking at the waste issue. I mean, the waste issue to me is is one that you just can't skirt around. Um, there's ultimately nowhere for the stuff to go. It stays radioactive for for a very, very, very long time, way past our lifespans, obviously. Um, and I mean, to, to put it in perspective, humans have only been roaming outside of Africa for like 60,000 years. <laughs> uh, this radioactive waste in, it, it can last, you know, 200 to 400,000 years. So what are you going to do with it? And, and on top, top of that, um, plutonium that comes out of, um, nuke plants, um, can be used in atomic weapons. So you've already done a lot of the work to refine plutonium that can ultimately be used by a, a you know, a terrorist state. Um, and, and who's going to say what, what, what the, you know, what the globe looks like in 200 years. And so it's, it's just a very, the waste is just a very dangerous issue. I mean, Zaporizhia right now in Ukraine um, is in peril. Uh, it's getting the, you know, the shelling all around it. Um, the plant is offline, but it's on backup generators mainly all the time because you have to keep that waste cool and if you don't keep that waste cool you're going to have a meltdown um so it's a it's a danger in a war zone it's a danger if there's an earthquake or a tsunami in the case of fukushima um we know about chernobyl i mean the list is like endless for why this stuff is like so dangerous um but yet it still seems to be like oh well let's just ignore all of that and there's no carbon emissions so great it's an answer but I would just argue and throw it back at their face and say, look, nothing that produces or has this type of risks attached to it is an answer for climate change. It's just not. Um, of course, solar and wind have problems. There's no, I mean, no denying that. There's no denying that lithium mining is a huge, huge issue. Um, but none of this compares to, you know, <laughs> what nuclear ultimately could bring to this world. Um, and that could be an end to it ultimately if it was in the wrong hands. 
Yeah, I was going to say it's it's interesting because I know this episode uh, will be controversial just because I, I, I've had guests and listeners uh, in the past that are very, you know, pro-nuclear energy. So um, I think the points you're raising, though, are, are sort of an important, hey, maybe you should think about you well, know, and the here, issue Well, and here's waste. another one because I think, you know, for when you're talking to people on the left, um, I think it's also important to make the connections between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Um, that they are connected. I mean, look at the largest um, uh, nuclear power in Europe is France. France is also often deemed the, you know, model nation for using nuclear energy. Um, but as Macron has boasted, uh, it's the the industry, uh, the the power industry and the weapons industry in France are intricately connected. One funds the other. So you can't support one or and oppose the other. It doesn't work that way. That's just like, you know, you oppose the uh, Iraq war, but you support Pentagon spending. I mean, it doesn't work like that. So in reality, it doesn't work. Um, and then, of course, there's other problems with France's uh, plants. You know, half of them were offline last summer uh, during the huge heat wave in Europe um, because the water that they needed to draw from local rivers was so hot, so warm because of climate change that they were too too warm to cool down the reactor. So they had to take some of them offline. There was corrosion issues with other ones. There was other stuff going on. But can you imagine that like we're going to create something that's supposed to be an answer for climate change, yet climate change isn't an allowing it to work properly. <laughs> so you just have all kinds of problems. And, I, you know, you can't skirt around this stuff um, if you're going to you know look at it critically. In terms of the 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 connection to war and the military in regards to all of this, uh, you talk about something known as the permanent war economy. So what do we mean by the permanent war economy and um, how does it tie into the story of Hanford? Well, obviously, a lot of people, I think, understand the, the, the notion of the permanent war economy in the sense that uh, we are constantly pouring money into the Pentagon uh, weapons manufacturers are going to profit off of sending tanks and other things to Ukraine, what's going on now. Um, and it it's it's a, a major driver of spending in Washington. Uh, when we look at the numbers, obviously, it's like off the charts how much money is going into weapons development um, compared to, you know, fighting climate change, for instance. Um so in the in the context of Hanford, you know, Hanford, as I mentioned, is a result of <laughs> producing weapons and now is is caught up in the same for profit system. Um, and just as we can't and have a tough time holding to account uh, weapons manufacturers, we have a really tough time holding to account contractors out there. And that's by design, um, ultimately, because uh, the war machine and U.S. imperialism can't function at the level it's functioning at with transparency and with accountability. Um, I mean, when's the last time you saw an audit come out of the, you know, the government accountability office comes out with an audit of the Pentagon and like, Oh, whoops, we lost a $150 billion. We don't know where it is. You know, <laughs> like it happens. It seems like that happens every six months. Um, and then it just doesn't even really make headlines. We're really used to it, but this is now that, you know, that constant sort of um, cycle that uh, Hanford is caught in as well. Um, and I think it's it's important to, to think to to link all of this together because they are they are connected. 
Let's talk a little bit about the workers at Hanford and uh, just the ways in which, I, I mean, there's been some uh, just cruel ways that they've been screwed over, uh, particularly with uh, workers like Abe Garza. Yeah. Um, so because Hanford is as polluted as we've talked about, um, aside from all of this radioactive waste, there's just tons and tons of chemical waste out there as well. Uh, which produces all kinds of vapors and other problems. So workers that are working out there on different aspects of the cleanup are constantly exposed to some of the most virulent chemicals we have a, a, around. Um, and Abe Garza uh, is one one victim of um, vapor that emanated from a, a, one of these waste tanks. Um, make made him really really sick. He's dealing with lifelong problems, but he's just one of dozens of other other um, victims. And this isn't even like an accident that happened. Of course, there's other accidents that have happened out there where a bunch of workers at once were exposed to things. Um, but just going to work day in and day out, oftentimes these guys are are and I say guys, there's men and women um, that are exposed to different horrible things. Um, and oftentimes they're not wearing respirators. They don't have uh, the right protective gear. Uh, other times they're not even told what they might be exposed to if they go into certain areas. Sometimes the contractors in the Department of Energy don't even know what they might be exposed to. Um, and then other times there's just blatant safety protocol that is that is flouted. So they will not be wearing protective gear that can protect them. Um, and in a lot of cases, uh, when there's been a whistleblower that comes out and, and speaks up about this and says, hey, look, we're not following protocol. Um, we're putting people's lives at risk uh, and their health at risk. We should be doing X, Y and Z. Uh, oftentimes they go, their, their pleas go ignored. Um, other times they've been silenced. Um, and and I write about one case in the book of a, of a guy who uh, you know, came out and spoke up about stuff and, um, and his life was threatened. Um, Are you talking about Ed Bricker? Yeah, I'm talking it's, about Yeah, Ed. I was going to ask you about him yeah. next, actually. Yeah. yeah, so Ed Ed is an example of a whistleblower that, you know, here's a guy, he was, you know, if, if we were talking to him about pretty much any other type of politics, we probably wouldn't agree with him. He's, or, you know, he's a, he's a, a Christian conservative Republican. Um, but he also is by the book. And after working for decades at Hanford, he raised, you know, raised the flag a number of times about different safety protocol that wasn't followed. And he was con constantly ignored. Um, it got so extreme um, that there at a time in the in the 80s, um, when and, and even the early 90s, you know, it was Hanford was operating under this guise of secrecy. And there was essentially a, a secret paramilitary operation that patrolled this place, right? Because it could be uh, attacked. It could be, you know, spies could infiltrate it, all of these things. So they went after Ed Bricker just like they would if they thought he was like a Soviet infiltrator. Yeah, um, I was going to say he was tracked. He was harassed. He was they, tracked. They really yeah, tried to his, silence his, him. his yeah. closest friend that he worked with, you know, was uh, basically blackmailed in order to follow him and track him and try to find a way to fire him, essentially. 
Um, yeah, Jack Manis, right? That was yeah, the, yeah, the special was, item mole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And um, ultimately, Ed was um, sabotaged. Uh, he was tasked one day with going down into this very remote uh, valley, little canyon that is one of the most radioactive places in, out at Hanford. And he gets down to the bottom and his respirator tank that's hooked to his oxygen was loose. And um, he couldn't get it back on. And he went to go for his his other tank and it was taped over. So he literally had to like rush out of this canyon holding his breath. Um, and his lawyer at the time, Tom Carpenter, uh, told me that um, without a doubt, he believes that it, it was intentional um, that his tank malfunctioned that day, that someone was trying to kill him. Um, you know, and this is just one of the stories that have come to light. You know, I'm sure there are many, many more that have never been told. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if there were workers out there that, that died as a result of, of raising, you know, blowing the whistle on different things that were happening out there. So who was behind this, um, this special item mole operation? It was Rockwell, right? Yeah. So it was Rockwell, but it was the contractor. Yeah. Yeah. But it was funded by, you know, the U S government um rockwell basically they were like the black water right of of policing the grounds at hanford you know and today um that there is obviously you know security at hanford uh the tanks themselves are absolutely a target for an attack um from homegrown terrorists or you know others um so but it, it doesn't fortunately doesn't operate in the same way that it once did. Um, I think I'm hopeful and in, 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 in confident in saying that um, a story like his Ed Bricker's would be a lot harder to sweep under the rug today than it was, you know, 30 years ago. But I also think that his story is an important one because it just shows um, how where we're, where we've come in the Hanford cleanup and where we need to go as far as as far as transparency goes if you could uh tell my listeners a little bit more about uh donald alexander and also after that um walter i don't want to mispronounce his name uh, tamasitis yeah tamasitis. okay yeah <laughs> yeah um well first donald alexander he's, he's really just a great guy and i've had so many conversations with him over the years and he, he has educated me so much about hanford and and you know the science that's going on out there and um, so Donald was a scientist. He's now retired. He was a scientist, uh, with the department of energy that oversaw, uh, different aspects of the waste, waste treatment plant. So really ultimately his job, um, when I was writing about him was, uh, that something would come across his desk that he would be responsible in signing off on, um, and he was really concerned about one aspect of the waste treatment plan at the time that wasn't going to function properly. Uh, so he was raising awareness about that. Um, ultimately, he was overruled. Um, and that's when he was like, this is this is messed up um, because being overruled in this case isn't just like uh, we want an, a, a different, you know, um, gas tank in this car. <laughs> it was something that was potentially could lead to a radioactive disaster. So it was a pretty serious breach in his in his mind of of his expertise and of his concerns. Um, 
and he's just a really interesting guy. He, he, uh, one of the reasons that I was really interested in talking to him is because he was um, tasked with going out to the Soviet Union to look at a similar a an accident out there that had happened in the late fifties uh, at a plant known as Mayak. Um, Mayak was the sister facility to Hanford in Russia that produced plutonium for their weapons programs. It was also a covert operation um, that that operated in a very rural area, which is now you know Ukraine. I think it's uh, now Ukraine, um, and it, with the accident that happened out there, eviscerated all kinds of local communities. Um, obviously, it wasn't something that made the news. Um, it uh, was um, on the atomic or nuclear accident scale it was like the third largest accident that's ever happened most people have never even heard about it um so what happened was there was a tank out there a waste tank that had some kind of sodium buildup and a fire er erupted and there was an explosion so obviously um that could be a potential hazard at hanford as well so donald alexander went out there to trade information with the soviets I think this might have been after the Cold War. So it was when things were kind of opening up and Gorbachev was inviting them over uh, with another team to look at the health impacts, the environmental impacts of this, this disaster, what had happened to share information. Um, and he came back really, really concerned that something similar could happen at Hanford. Um, and so it was with that in mind that I think he was coming to his job every day, trying to prevent something like this from happening. Um, and his commitment to cleaning it up was, was you know, um, educated by his experience going over to, to Russia. Um, so it was really, he, you know, he was just a, a really honest, great scientist that was committed to his job and really, really worried about what is and isn't happening at Hanford. Um, and then wrapped up in his story, I, I, I got in touch with Walter Tamasitis. So in a very short synopsis of the whole story, um, this one part of the waste treatment plant, Walter Tamasitis's team was hired to basically build this thing. Uh, Walter Tamasitis was in charge of engineers that were doing it. So he was a very top level scientist for a company called URS, which was a subcontractor to Bechtel. So ultimately Bechtel, the buck stopped with Bechtel, right? So Walter Tamasitis is raising all these concerns. Um, the same concerns are being echoed by Donald Alexander on the DOE side. And both of their concerns are essentially ignored. Uh, in the case of Donald Alexander, they couldn't fire him because he works for the Department of Energy. Uh, but in Walt's case, he was relegated as basically like a second class uh, worker. Um, he went from being a top level uh, scientist to or in, he's actually a, a engineer to um, like working in an office without windows, quite literally. And what they didn't fire him, but they basically demoted him and were sending him around to other sites uh, across the country as a sort of in-house consultant. Um, and his concerns were completely, completely ignored. Uh, he ended up suing over the last 10 years. It's been a battle, different lawsuits, but he ended up settling for a nice uh, chunk of money because um, he was wrongfully treated. Um, but 
as I write about in the book, you know, um, Walt um, really misses the job and he really misses uh, going to work every day. And he would do anything to have that life back and not have that, you know, the money for him was nothing. He didn't, the, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think about someone settling and getting all this money and all oh, that ends it all. It really doesn't, you know, I mean, his whole identity was shattered because of what, what happened to him. And um, he suffered PTSD as a result of it. Um, and again, he, he, Walt's a really conservative guy. I sent him a copy of the book. <laughs> he probably didn't even really like it. He probably liked the chapter about him, but you know, um, one of the things I think is really important is to listen to these people that uh, we might not agree with on the whole operation itself at Hanford, um, but it almost makes their concerns even more validating because they are the ones that are going to work every day and they believe in nuclear technology, um, but they're still really, really, really fucking worried about Hanford. Um, that should be, you know, uh, a warning light for all of us. I was also going to ask, um, in terms of some of the other figures that come up in the book, uh, I wanted to ask about who are some of the faces behind uh, Bechtel? Because it's not just a, a faceless corporation. These are corporations that are run by people, you know. So, uh, you know, uh, you mm -hmm. know, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the figures involved with Bechtel, like Frank Russo. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, I don't even know if Frank still works for Bechtel. I mean, one of the things that so Frank Russo was working out there at the time when all of this was going down and and with when these when Walt was filing these lawsuits, we were getting transcripts of like email exchanges uh, between Frank Russo and other people at Department of Energy um underlings uh, all of all these all these people that were talking about like walt is a disaster he's killing us like he's going to ruin this operation we're not going to get you know renewed or we're going to lose our contract all of this shit right um and frank russo was like the main villain in in that story but like with all of these um you know contract heads and these managers out there they continually are like rotating they go to other sites, they they move along this, you know, the Bechtel chain. Maybe they work for another, you know, a lot of them go and end up working for the government. A lot of them come back and work for uh, the old revolving door. Yeah, it's really, it's like a conveyor belt. Um, so Frank is one of those people. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, Bechtel is really secretive. Like we, we know who runs Bechtel, we know it, but it, they basically operate like a Blackwater they operate like a military contractor. So there is no accountability. So it remains, it, it isn't that it's faceless, but there is so little accountability that we're not having the managers of Bechtel show up at a congressional hearing like the tobacco CEO standing up and saying that, you know, radioactivity doesn't cause cancer, <laughs> like, um, unfortunately. So, that's part of what you know i want to do with this book is that uh to shed a little light on the whole operation itself and to give people a little background on it as best i can um so that perhaps we can have more accountability so that perhaps uh the faces of bechtel and others can come out from behind the curtain a little bit and and be held accountable so and be questioned by the public about why they're making the decisions that they're making um 
because ultimately we're not going to have accountability as long as as they remain you know a lot of this stuff remains kind of cloaked in secrecy um and that's not to say we can't go online and you can find out who's operating what and doing what but um the decisions the day-to-day decisions are largely unknown to the public there were just two more questions i had i i think my listeners would be interested in hearing more about this um very secretive military experiment known as the green run and how mm-hmm. that factors into the story. So when Hanford was operating as a, you know, covert aspect of our weapons production. Um, and also just, just to throw this in there, um, the plutonium that was used in the fat man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was produced at, at Hanford. Um, during that time in the late 40s, and I can't remember exactly what year the Green Run was, I want to say 49. Um, maybe you can look it up. I don't know. But um, the Green Run was... Yeah, it was a, the, the Green Run was 49, according to your book. Yeah. Okay. So the Green Run was... Um, there's still a lot of unknown about the Green Run. We know that it was an, uh, an intentional release of... Um, iodine 191 that was they called it green because it was fresh so it was as toxic toxic as it comes and for those that don't really know what iodine is it will end up getting into your thyroid um, where all radioactivity can right and it can lead to thyroid disease and cancers um, and all kinds of other problems it can end up landing on fields of grass that gets eaten by cows and the cows, then their milk, we drink and we get, we get that toxic. So this was an intentional release of it um, that went far and wide um, downwind. Um, the day of the release, it was ended up being like a, a windy day and their whole quote unquote experiment went awry. And there's a lot of reasons and speculation about what they were trying to do with this test run of this green run. Um, of course, they didn't, it didn't notify any of the public that was downwind of what was going on. Um, some believe, and I, I tend to agree with them, that this was probably an intentional release of radioactive materials to see uh, what would occur if, a, if an attack happened, um, a radioactive uh, you know, attack happened. Basically, the two, the two running theories that I sort of think probably have some validity are uh, one that it was an intentional release that uh, was a test run for a biological weapon or in this in this case a chemical you know radioactive weapon um, or it was or maybe both um, also a, a test to see what this kind of um, attack might do you know weather and pattern wise how far would this stuff spread um, but regardless of the intention, the result was that it was a horrific release. Um, and I think the uh, largest intentional release of that we know about, at least, of such radioactive material on the U.S. public by the U.S. government. The other uh, question I had, um, one of the later chapters deals with a figure you call the Quiet Order. Russell Jim of the Yakima Nation. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, why you devoted a chapter to him in the Yakima Nation? Sure. Yeah. You know, Russell Jim, 
um, to me, symbolizes the resistance to the U.S. militarism and, and what they've done out at Hanford. And he did it in a way that was like really kind of Gandhi-like, very peaceful, um, but also very fierce. And he was really, I, I say, I, I talk about him in the past tense because he died a few years ago. Um, but over the course of his life, he immersed himself in all aspects of the Hanford Project. And I, I would say probably understood the history and the science better than a lot of people that work out there. Um, after the... Hanford became, had basically been shut down as a plutonium operation. The U.S. government was still debating whether or not they wanted to go out there and use Hanford as a waste repository for, um, you know, other high level, high, high level radioactive waste. And Russell Jim, along with some others, was like, no way, like Hanford is as polluted as we, it needs to be. Like, we don't need to uh, keep dumping all this shit out here. Um, before he had raised those kind of questions and those concerns, the Yakima people were pretty much ignored um, and their voices were not being heard. And the, you know we're going back to the eighties now. Um, and at that time, uh, Russell Jim went out to Congress. Uh, he spoke to Congress and he, he really was the one that Stopped Hanford from uh, becoming a future, you know, destination for a lot of our high-level waste. Unfortunately, that waste went other places, um, but for Hanford, it was a victory. And because of the activism and the actions that he took, uh, to this day, no major decisions can be made out at Hanford without uh, the Yakima people and Indigenous nations having a seat at the table. So it was a huge, huge victory, and you know. From that, I take away sort of something positive because I think, you know, the reason that's that's the reason I included his story in the book, because you can read all of this stuff and it's like, what the fuck are we going to do? Right. Like this is horrible. Like it is it is really fucking scary. Uh, how can we fight back? What can we do to, you know, deal with this stuff? And I think it's important to look at those that have been successful in fighting back. Um, in, you know, bringing some accountability to the whole operation. Um, and his people, I would argue, more so than any others out there have been victimized. Um, I would say the Yakima Nation, along with the Japanese, um, and of course the testing of bombs in Nevada and the Marshall Islands and others, other places, are, are the real, you know, the real victims of, of our atomic programs. And I think it's important to realize that they're still here with us today and they're still victims and they need our support. I, I also, uh, before you go, and I'm not trying to keep you overly long, I noticed in the acknowledgement sections section at the end of the book uh, that you mentioned someone who I didn't realize until reading your book was actually a pretty prominent environmentalist and anti-war activist, but you mentioned uh, a sort of special thanks to Marco Kidder. Uh, the actress from Superman. Uh, Margie, well, yeah. I, I was just curious. Uh, <laughs> how did she help you out with this? Oh, Margie was, you know, Margie was a real inspiration. So she was a big fan of Counterpunch. She wrote for Counterpunch. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she was very active in uh, Standing Rock. Um, she was going out there before she died. 
and she also was living in Montana. I'm from Montana. So I got to, you know, I got to hang out and meet Margie a few times. Um, just a wonderful inspira inspiration. And when I was writing um, those stories for Seattle Weekly, I talked to her quite a bit about, you know, about what was happening out there because she was really concerned as well. And she was, um, had been very active in her younger years in the anti-nuke movement as well. So she was very, you know, we had a lot of back and forth about it. So that's why I included her in the thanks because she was definitely an inspiration in many ways. Well, I did not realize that Lois Lane was such a badass. Wow. <laughs> she was a total badass. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was a badass. She, she lived, you know, she lived the life of an activist, not of a Hollywood superstar. Yeah. I wish there were more of those. I, yeah, yeah but, we, <laughs> we need, we, we got a few good ones. Uh, Margot Kidder, sometimes Martin Sheen. So we have a few yeah. good actors out there that do good work, but uh, yeah, definitely. I want to thank you again, uh, Joshua Frank uh, in closing. Uh, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation and what do you hope they get out of the book? Because the story of Hanford uh, in a lot of ways is the story of America. And I think the ramifications of Hanford are going to haunt us for a long time. Yeah. You know, thanks so much for having me and for everybody listening to this. And um, yeah, obviously I'd love if they go pick up a copy of the book, um, but just, you know, go to your library you know, and, and ask if they have a copy and see if they can order one in, you know, if you don't have the funds to pick one up. Um, I, I just think that it's an important story that I think we all need to know about because it potentially could impact all of us. And it's just really a largely unknown story. A lot of people have never heard of Hanford. Um, they, if you ask somebody, what's the most toxic place in America? They couldn't tell, they probably, I don't know what they would tell you. Um, but I bet you they wouldn't tell you Hanford. And if you ask them what the most expensive environmental cleanup in world history is, they probably wouldn't tell you it's Hanford. Um, so that alone, I think, just should be in our, you know, our common <laughs> vernacular. Like we should be talking about this stuff. Um, and I just hope that it can be, you know, I hope the book can just be sort of um, an opening to these discussions about militarism, about impacts to our lands, um, and then also whether or not uh, atomic energy is really an answer to climate change. Um, I think this is a good primer. I mean, there by no means is this book like a the end all for the Hanford story. And, you know, it's really just a, uh, you know, it's a primer. It's just going to hopefully um, intrigue more interest in this because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the groups out there that are fighting this stuff, you know, the Yakima Nation, but there's others, Hanford Challenge is up in Seattle, the Columbia Riverkeeper. I mean, there are local groups that are working on diff different aspects of stuff going on at Hanford, but nationally, like, this isn't in the conversation. Uh, and we're all paying for it. We're all, we're all shelling out money um, for this huge, huge, huge operation, and there's very little accountability. So I, I was going to say in that regard, I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but since you mentioned that some of the figures in your book um, may be a little bit more conservative, I, I think even some conservatives would find this book interesting because we are shelling out all this taxpayer money on yeah. the cleanup. So, I mean, if you're a conservative person, and I know I have a few uh, conservatives that listen to this program, even though I lean leftward, I mean, for them, it should be a concern just because, I mean, if they're worried about, you know, how taxpayer money is spent, you know, I mean, we Absolutely. have to put so much into this. Absolutely. Um, but that's not to say, you know, I totally agree with you, actually. Um, but that's not to say that if the cleanup actually takes a trillion dollars and it's done right, it should be spent. 
right? Um, it's about how it's being spent. It's about not having accountability. Um, it's it's about not getting the job done and still profiting, you know? And that's, you know, I think that that in that regard, this book um, and this story is important for everybody. And um, I think everybody can take something different away from it, ultimately. Do you think it's also important uh, in light of just where we're at now in this historical moment, especially with, you know, this book, a lot of it deals with the Cold War era. And, you know, we're increasingly in a sort of a new Cold War, uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, So do you think it's relevant in that regard as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, for the anti, you know, it's (laughs) when you talk about sort of the you mentioned it earlier, the anti-nuke movement. Right. But that that also meant anti-proliferation. um, which is still going on. You know, the, the, the freeze movement was a really big movement in the 80s and it was largely responsible for uh, scaling down our arsenal of atomic weapons in the late 80s. Um, but and now that conversation is back again. You know, now we have this, oh, we're going to attack, you know, Putin has tactical nukes. Um, <laughs> you know, like we have nukes, like we're talking about this again. Treaties are getting ripped up, you know. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of sable rattling about China and Taiwan. You know, we have uh, nuclear plants in the in the war zone. I mean, all of this stuff is still happening today, right? Aside from the the, the waste lasting forever, um, and Hanford being just as problematic today as it was on ten years ago, um, it's still like you said, it's still really really important for those of us that op- oppose militarism to understand the environmental impacts, the human impacts, and the financial impacts of unchecked proliferation. Yeah, and it's also important because I I think one of the things that your book highlights is that I I think we need a united front when it comes to uh, various issues that upon first glance may seem unconnected, but when you dig deeper, they're all connected, right? Like, you know, you can't talk about environmentalism without talking about the scourge of militarism. You can't talk about any of this without looking at capitalism and its role. So, and and also the Mm -hmm. indigenous struggle. I mean, that ties into this story. So I think your Mm -hmm. book really puts into perspective the fact that, you know, we need a united front against all these different things that are causing issues like Hanford. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, Someone asked me recently about what can they do? I mean, all of this stuff just sounds so crazy, right? Like, how can I how can I fight uh, for the climate and how can I oppose uh, nuclear weapons? I mean, these are both like the catastrophic things that we're dealing with. And all I say is ultimately just try to you know fight the military. The military is the biggest um, polluter in the world of carbon emissions. Of CO2 emissions, and they also are the you know holders of the biggest uh, uh, nuclear arsenal in the world. So you want to you want to fight both things. Let's focus on dismantling the U.S. military machine. Um, you know that's just one thing. Obviously, capitalism is still a problem, but <laughs> that that arguably is still is tied into the militarism as well. Well, hey, thank you, Joshua Frank, for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope everyone checks out the book Atomic Days. Uh, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Next up, we'll be speaking with Yint Mu of Win Without War about his article in The Hill entitled, A New Nuclear Weapons Delivery System is the Last 
thing the U.S. needs. We'll be honing in on what Yint calls Congress's pet nuclear boondoggle, known as the Nuclear Armed Sea Launched Cruise Missile, SLCMN for short, and the problems with it. Additionally, we'll also discuss the mission of Win Without War and its attempts to promote a progressive vision for U.S. foreign policy. With that in mind, let's get right to it with Yint Mu of Win Without War. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Yint Mu of Win Without War, an organization dedicated to progressive foreign policy and pushing that kind of foreign policy in Washington, D.C. We need a more progressive foreign policy, in my opinion, so they're doing really important work. How are you doing today? Uh, first of all, uh, JG, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here, uh, and I am doing quite well myself. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. It's a new year. And I think we have a lot to talk about with regards to Win Without War, its mission, and some of your recent writings. So let's start with that. Uh, what is Win Without War for people that may be unfamiliar? Of course. Uh, Win Without War is a progressive foreign policy advocacy organization. Uh, we're an organization that is powered by hundreds of thousands of activists from all across the country. And, uh, and our work is centered in providing progressive policy alternatives alternatives to the uh, security challenges that we face today and uh, advocating for those alternatives in Congress and in the White House. So maybe you could get into some examples of what a more progressive foreign policy would look like uh, in America. Of course, uh, progressive foreign policy at its core for us uh, and the progressive movement is it is foreign policy that is aimed at building real and lasting security for people in the U.S. and around the world that is not simply based on U.S. military might and supremacy. Uh, it is foreign policy that is based on conflict prevention rather than preparation for conflict. Uh, the security challenges we face today uh, cannot be solved by our militarized foreign policy. So then in terms of actual policy what what are some concrete changes uh that that say when without war would be pushing for right now of course uh so uh i guess i can just uh dive right into the reason that i'm here uh which is the uh nuclear weapons delivery system uh writing that i did a uh, couple months ago so if I could, I'll, I'll just dive right in to that, uh, what that weapon system is. Uh, right. So, and, and real quick, I was going to say your article on this uh, and, and how we yes. initially got in contact. Um, it's an article from the 21st of November. A new nuclear weapons delivery system is the last thing the U.S. needs uh, from the Hill. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, but go on. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I think that would be a much more concrete example of what one of that war does as its work. So uh, anyway, so this is this the weapons, new nuclear weapons delivery system called SLCM. It's uh, S-L-C-M-N. And it, it stands for Nuclear Armed Sea Launched Cruise Missile. Uh, basically, what that means is that this is a nuclear weapons delivery system uh, that is designed to deliver nuclear warheads 
from ships, planes, or submarines. And uh, and here's where the problem is with that weapon system, is that that nuclear weapons delivery system is inherently more dangerous because it's a very ambiguous weapon system. And what I mean by that is that they're hard to track on radar, and it pretty much looks like conventional missiles that are carried by U.S. naval assets around the world. So neither our allies nor our adversaries can tell uh, whether any random ship or submarine is armed with a nuclear weapon. And whenever a ship or a submarine fires a missile, everyone will be left wondering if it's a nuke or not. And do you see where the problem lies? And what in and the the risk of accidents and miscalculations are just so much higher in this really complex nuclear landscape that we have. So yeah, and the main takeaway that I want to emphasize to you and to your listeners is that this is a nuclear weapons delivery system that just makes the world more dangerous. It is a weapon system that we don't want and we don't need, but Congress just keeps giving it money anyway. And and this is uh you know bipartisan bipartisan within Congress, and we're talking about the uh, this is the SLCMN yes program. Yeah. Okay, we are talking about the SLCN um, SLCMN program. Yeah, all these DC is full of acronyms, especially when it comes to weapon systems. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So this was a bipartisan uh pro uh. It was a bipartisan vote uh, when it came down to it. But I mean, the politics, of, the politics of it is very interesting, though, because the Biden administration was actually with the progressives on this issue. Uh, they came out with the, when they came out with their nuclear uh, posture review, uh, they correctly recommended that we stop funding for this program. But the Pentagon and the military brass pushed back and moderate Democrats and Republicans teamed up went completely rogue against the administration's position and funded the program either way. Yeah, and I was going to say, so the, the this is the nuclear armed sea launch cruise missile. Um, can we get a, a little bit more into, I, I guess, the issues with funding this and, and some of the other problems that you, you guys have with them? Of course. And um, and this, uh, if I could, and like, based on, like, I'll bring it back to like, the principles of progressive foreign policy. We advocate for conflict prevention, not preparation for conflict. This weapon system, as well as all of the many, many weapons programs in the Pentagon are designed as preparation for conflict, you know? So this Slickum, the argument for this nuclear weapons delivery system for Slickum is that we need this weapon as a deterrence against our adversaries. But instead, what ends up happening is that we're feeding the cycle of building more and more nuclear weapons. And uh, and this also comes at a time when global nuclear arms control regimes are falling apart and nuclear risk is at an all-time high. Um, JD, I don't know if you caught it, but like the doomsday clock now stands at 90 seconds to midnight. Uh, yeah, the, just... yeah, the bulletin uh, yes. of atomic scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. They just shifted it, uh, what, like uh, last week, I believe. Uh, and it's now the closest it's ever been to midnight. And that's counting the Cold War. 
So what progressives are trying to do is to prevent this kind of nuclear arms race in the first place by advocating for diplomacy and nuclear arms control. And also, this is important to really discuss in light of, you know, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and what prompted me to write the article in the first place is it was at a time when, you know, Putin was making nuclear threats, right? So the United States needed to maintain its position as a responsible world power by not doubling down on weapon systems that are uh, being parroted by authoritarian regimes around the world. Um, and uh, this nuclear uh, this nuclear weapons delivery system, SLICM, is a tactical nuclear, it's a tactical nuclear delivery device, uh, which is in the same, considered to be in the same category as the same tactical nukes that Putin was threatening to use uh, in his war against Ukraine. Uh, so you see the danger for Congress to just go rogue and pers- unilaterally pursue the development of this kind of weapon system while the Biden administration and the rest of the world are trying to reduce the nuclear risk in Ukraine. And if we could, I want to talk about the SLCMN in terms of you know what you call in the Hill article, you know, this sort of perpetually ballooning uh, Pentagon budget and how, you know, this uh, project could become uh, yet another part of that, you know, uh, ballooning budget, you know, the the status quo when it comes to these multi-million dollar weapons programs. Yeah. Um, the, the Pentagon budget that just passed uh, last year, uh, back in December, uh, was $860 billion. So, you know, of the $860 billion, you might think this this $45 million funding is like, it's nothing, drop in the bucket, right? When you're considering that massive scale of a budget. But when you look at the Pentagon budget, uh, it is filled with a uh, dozen million dollars there, a dozen million dollars here for all of these weapons programs that all adds up to this giant ballooning budget. And we have a problem here in DC and in Congress is that we like to keep funding things, but we hate to remove funding things from the uh, de- from the Pentagon budget. It's like <laughs> it's like your closet, right? You will keep adding clothes in, but you will not take any clothes out, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So then, in terms of talking about these issues, you know, if I were to play devil's advocate for for people that don't follow the problems uh, that come out of this, you know, just the nuclear risks. Uh, There are people that will say, oh, well, you know, we need nuclear deterrence. Uh, Look at at Russia. They have nukes. Uh, We need these kind of programs. How do you respond to people that have that sort of, I I would say, misguided view? Uh, I would simply say that the U.S. has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world and the capability to end all life on this planet multiple times over. Like, there is no way any other country, for that matter, would be, like, reckless enough to risk a nuclear confrontation with us because we have so many weapons in stock. So it it just makes the conversation entirely moot, as in, like, there is no no country is going to risk 
a nuclear attack on us. We have enough capability for deterrence. Like this is, we're, this is just adding more and more into what we don't need. Yeah, and I was going to say one of the really important portions of your article on this deals with the risk of accidental nuclear conflict because, you know, these aren't like uh, conventional weapons, um, you know, and our adversaries uh, could conceivably be left wondering, is this a nuke? Is this not? You know, So yeah. uh, could you talk a little bit about that and that aspect of the article? Of course. Uh, so, yeah, this is an ambiguous weapon system. Uh, you know, if it gets fired, people can't tell. Countries will not be able to tell if it's a nuke or not. And and also, the one thing I want to point out is that this is also a tactical nuclear weapons system, which is different from the strategic nuclear weapon systems that we also have. You know, the strategic weapons are your, like, end-all-life kind of weapons. The tactical weapons are designed to be used on the battlefield, which in itself is, for the lack of a better word, stupid. Because there is no way any introducing any form of nuclear weapons into a conflict uh, just massively, massively increases the risk of unthinkable catastrophe. Um, and this weapon system lowers the threshold of because it is it because it is designed to be used on the battlefield lowers the threshold of you know people or governments employing uh, this kind of weapon system on the battlefield. It makes it easier for them to use it, and that should not be the way. Also, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, th this sort of missile program. Uh, I guess at the beginning of the article, you talk about how this was sort of given new life by uh, President Donald Trump. Maybe we could talk briefly about that and also about just how much money has been slipped into uh, this SLCMN research. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it It was a program that was removed uh if my memory is serving correctly, during President Obama's administration, and uh, President Donald Trump uh, brought it back in, uh, and that missile program. So, like the idea of the missile program started back during the height of the Cold War, right? Uh, once the Cold War was over and all of it, you know, the Obama administrations. Uh, had a position to retire this kind of weapons delivery program and stopped developing it. But the Trump administration reversed that decision and argued that the U.S. needed a, a non-strategic weapon as a deterrence, which, going back to my initial argument of tactical, tactical nuclear weapons are just stupid as a concept because it just lowers the threshold for to be used on the battlefield. Uh, so there's very much this policy difference uh, that progressives, progressives have that we're going into. Uh, but anyway, it was given new life by uh, Donald Trump's administration. Uh, and uh, 
President Biden, uh, when he came into office, did his nuclear policy, uh, nuclear posture review, uh, and then correctly identified that we do not want or need this delivery system and recommended that we remove it from uh, from our funding. And then also, uh, I think you write in the article that, you know, uh, hawkish Democrats with the GOP managed to slip in uh, $45 million into research uh, for the SLCMN research. So, I mean, this is taxpayer money we're talking about. That should also be a concern to people. Absolutely. Uh, this is taxpayer money that could be going towards so many other programs that could build real security for people. Uh, but Congress really decided to go rogue uh, and uh, and fund this weapons program. Yeah, and it's always important to note, we could be putting money into, you know, dealing with something like climate change rather than, you know, putting all this money into you know, nuclear weapons research. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, uh, going back and like, I'll bring it back to you know the fundamentals of progressive foreign policy principles. It is conflict prevention, right? Uh, climate is definitely one of the key drivers of conflict that we're seeing, and it impacts a lot of our a lot of the security challenges that we see today. So, it. The money could be going so many places, including, you know, development, diplomacy, uh, building re resiliency. Um, yeah, I could go on and on and list. But I'll stop. <laughs> I just had a, a, a few more issues I wanted to touch on uh, with regards to the, the issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think in a weird way, uh, you know, at, at least people within my age group, some people within my age group, millennials and some Zoomers, I don't think they've sought necessarily all, all the times, all the time about this issue of nuclear weapons, because, you know, we aren't living in uh, or we haven't been living in in the same sort of era that we were living in with the Cold War. You know, if you talk to my parents, for instance, they'll they'll tell you about, you know, that there was always fear of nuclear war breaking out. And I don't think we've had that, um, you know, since the end of the, the Soviet Union. Uh, do you think we need to really revisit the Cold War um, when talking about these issues and, and maybe making people understand, you know, that this is a very serious uh, issue, the, the issue of nuclear weapons and proliferation. Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, as in nuclear weapons, it is a very, very serious issue, which rightly, you know, a lot of our generation millennials are not paying enough attention to because for our generation, we came up with a very different kind of uh, a very different problem, shall we say, when our government was fully going on and waging uh, this endless war uh, against terrorism. And um, so we had a vastly different experience and we did not experience uh, the nuclear scares of the Cold War. But um, but the one thing I want to emphasize is that it's actually, I would argue that it's actually more dangerous than the Cold War because during the Cold War, it is two parties that actually had strategic nuclear arms control talks and had treaties in place. And we were talking with the Soviets. We had arms control treaties. There were verification regimes and all of that. 
But now we live in a world where there are more nuclear powers, nuclear players, without the safeguards of arms control treaties or even arms control talks. So I would argue that it is even more dangerous than the Cold War. And yes, absolutely, we should be paying more attention to what's happening in the nuclear landscape. So before we start wrapping up, uh, in terms of uh, what Win Without War has been doing recently, you guys just released a Year in Progressive Foreign Policy 2022 uh, review. Uh, Could you tell my listeners about what's in that and uh, some of the work that you'll be doing in 2023? Of course. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you uh, so much for bringing up our uh, 2022 year in review uh, product. Uh, we're very, we're actually very, we're very proud of it. Uh, it is a compilation uh, of our biweekly policy newsletters, uh, which uh, all of your listeners can subscribe to on our website. Uh, so every two weeks, uh, we send out a policy newsletter. Uh, that contains a wide range of policy analysis that people generally do not get. It is rooted in anti-militarism analysis. It is human-centered. It is our progressive foreign policy alternative. uh, I'm jumbling my words. It is a progressive foreign policy uh, product. Um, and, uh, And we released a compilation of some of our favorite uh, editions from 2022. And uh, included in that are uh, topics like uh, Pentagon and climate emissions, uh, nuclear weapons, of course. Uh, And we also had uh, a piece on what it means for progressive foreign policy in the aftermath of the most recent midterm elections. So. It's on our website. I would highly encourage uh, you and your listeners to go check it out and uh, you can subscribe to it as well. Uh, yeah. And uh, and to the other uh, part of your question uh, for what's coming up for, uh, for us uh, in this upcoming year, uh, there's a lot happening, uh, but there are some of, there are going to be a few key main things that we're going to be focusing on. Uh, first is the upcoming Afghanistan hearings. Uh, which are going to happen in Congress later this year. Uh, We're going to be advocating for accountability uh, in the process of the withdrawal. Um, We're also going to be focusing on working on reducing climate emissions from the Pentagon. Uh, And uh, and the last thing, the last one of the last few things, main big things we'll also be focusing on is driving forward the discussion among progressives on how we can avoid a disastrous war with China. Because right now, the conversation around DC is there is this, it's like a foregone conclusion, it's inevitable, it's happening, right? No, like, we refuse, like, that is not the right take, like, it is not an inevitable war, and we are going to be pushing back against that kind of narrative. So those are some of the, and of course, you know, we have our work on trying to repeal the outdated authorization for the use of military force against Iraq, uh, which is, you know, 20 plus years later still on the books. So there, we'll have, we'll keep working on those issues. But uh, yeah, so I just, I think I just gave you a lot of priorities, but those are the main things that we'll be focusing on. 
And and just closing out here, in terms of the work you're doing, you know, I've had a lot of different voices on uh, that take an anti-militarist approach or some people would say a pro-restraint approach, uh, approach to foreign policy. I've had people from the Quincy Institute on. And I think one of the things that all of us are trying to get at is that we really need to dis- rediscover uh, the tolls within the diplomatic toolbox uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, do you think we're closer to doing that now? Because I know there are a lot of war-happy or hawkish elements in D.C., uh, especially in certain think tanks. But I think you know the average American, I think, uh, is very wary of war, especially after the Iraq war in Afghanistan. And I think people do understand the risks involved in war. And uh, I think people do think that you know we should always try for diplomacy uh, first. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I... I would argue that you know this is our power is only growing every year. Uh, this election cycle gave us the largest progressive class of members of Congress. Uh, so our coalition is just expanding, and uh, and people are paying attention. We actually have a seat at the table, and we are arguing for progressive policy alternatives that is not rooted in war. Yes, we have to expand. Like, we really need to step away from our militarized foreign policy, which will not solve the security challenges uh, that we are facing today. And uh, part of the part of the challenge is taking on the the status quo in Washington and the status quo thinking in Washington that is very rooted in a military action first mentality. And I, I also should ask because it, it it just popped up in my head that it would be, you know, a, a crime for me not to ask this. But you know, uh, since your article was written in November, uh, has anything changed with regards to this story of, you know, a new nuclear weapons delivery system? And um, you know, has anything changed with regards to that story since you first wrote that article? A uh, couple updates. Uh... It's more, it's more like a yes and no. As in, like yes, it ha- like it was in the budget. It passed. Uh, it's now part of the budget for this coming year. Uh, but no, as in this delivery system is still in development. Uh, if my if I'm recalling my facts correctly, uh, it will not be actually in service until like the mid 2030s. So. We still have time to stop this, and we're going to go another round at it again this year to try to get it removed from the budget. And again, if you could, maybe you could let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and the work of When Without Work. Of course. Uh, we, uh, like I said, uh, go visit our website, uh, uh dot org uh and you can subscribe uh to our uh foreign policy uh newsletter uh that i mentioned uh, earlier on and uh you can also and you can follow me on twitter uh at yint h underscore that is at y-i-n-t-h underscore and thank you again yint mu for coming on parallax views uh, jg thank you so much for having me Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Joshua Frank and Yint Moo. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, 
please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.